Good morning, church. We come to the next to the last installment in our series in Revelation. And uh, you probably know what that means since we left off last week with chapter 11. There's 22 of them in there. So we got a lot to do today, and we got a little bit to do next week, and uh, we're going to finish strong. Uh, Last week, we talked in uh, chapters 6 through 11 about symbols and signs and how there were things that pointed us in the right direction. Well, I like signs, and I find them helpful most of the time. Um, All right. We're going to talk today about the signs that point to the judgment. Now, don't get really, really anticipating that that the song we just sang, let this be the day, the, the final day, that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about all the signs that lead up to that last day, and we have to talk about something that's a little bit uh, uncomfortable for us. One is that God's wrath and judgment of humanity are coming. That, that, that we've read all about His mercy and His grace, and we've talked about that, and, and there are two kinds of judgment that are, are pointed to in this passage. One is a wrath or a judgment, a, a suffering that draws people to Jesus. And then next week especially, we're going to talk about the final judgment when God calls this whole thing to a close. So like I said, I like signs. And I know that you like signs. You like signs that are helpful, not signs that are not helpful. Signs that actually tell you what a product is supposed to do and not do. Signs that tell you where this road actually leads. One of my favorite signs is in North Mississippi, and uh, you're driving on I-55, and there's a sign that says Mississippi State next exit, but it's 150 miles from there. (laughs) It's true that road eventually gets there. And so some signs are helpful, and some really aren't. You've been there. And there are some times that the signs are right, but we don't follow them, and we end up on the wrong road. There is another section of that same highway in Mississippi. On a trip one time, I had apparently forgotten that I had moved from New Orleans to Atlanta, and we were driving to Dallas, got to Jackson, Mississippi, I-55, sheer muscle memory had me follow the signs to New Orleans. We were about 30 miles down the road before I said, you know, this stuff looks familiar, but it doesn't look familiar like you're going to Dallas. Wrong road. Well, all of the signs and symbols that we've been talking about point to the right road, point to the only road, point to what we call the exclusivity of Christ. Oops, we're slow today. I'm slow today. And it can be lonely because it's a touchy subject to be in conversation with your friends at school, at work, around the Thanksgiving table. And for you to embrace 
what Jesus said about himself in John 14, 6, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. We could put the emphasis in a different place and say that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, singular, exclusive. And a lot of Revelation is talking about all of the other alternatives that people tried to come up with to replace God with their gods, big G God with little G gods, all their idols, all their temples, all their representations. And John was wise enough to accept the vision of Jesus Christ that said, this is not new. It has been, it is, it will be, that people will try to find something besides God to be their God. There was a survey done not too long ago that was a little frightening to me. This claim denies the validity of alternatives, and this survey indicated that 66% of American Christians say that many religions lead to eternal life. That's two out of three Christians who say that Jesus is not the only way. Fifty-two percent of evangelicals, those, those who believe uh, in a, in a uh, uh, not, not so much a liturgical faith, but, but more like what we practice, fifty-two percent of evangelicals say that many religions could lead to eternal life. Forty-eight percent say that God accepts the worship of all religious people. But this I know. 100% of people who are true Christians believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and that nobody comes to the Father but through Him. And that's kind of where we are in Revelation. John is nearing the end of his vision. He's certainly past the, 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 the turning point, the midpoint, and, and in chapter 11, he, he took us through some of the signs and symbols that would point to the end of the age. But what's really interesting that we saw last week, and we're going to see even more this week, is that there is a theme of mercy that goes throughout this judgment cycle. It's like God uh, is wanting to the very last minute for people to understand who He is, who they are, what they've done, how it offends Him, repent and receive the grace that He offers through Jesus Christ. And so, throughout this, we see mercy. Let me catch you up just a little bit. In chapter 11, there were two witnesses that are, are described, and they were, their job was to tell people about Jesus. And so, they would prophesy, and, and they would be ultimately killed, but they would be resurrected. And at the end of chapter 11, it says they uh, arose, and, and there was a great earthquake, and people were terrified and gave glory to God. So, there's this, this element of turning to God. And then, as we said last week, the seventh angel blew the trumpet, and he said, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and of his Christ he shall reign forever and ever. And if that makes you think of Handel's Messiah, that's where that lyric came from. He shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever and ever and ever and all that. So now he says in verse 18 of chapter 11, the nations raged, but your wrath came 
and it's time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints. And so it says in verse 19, then God's temple in heaven opened. There were uh, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, earthquake, and heavy hail. And, and we have this idea that the judgment, the final judgment, is coming. And I will say throughout this morning, there, there are two judgments that are pictured here. One is sort of a remedial judgment. One is sort of a, a judgment where God allows suffering to happen. He allows us a glimpse of what is in store for those who remain unrepentant for the rest of their lives and for all eternity. He, he allows us just a glimpse. Last week we talked about the bowls of wrath that he, he poured out a little bit at a time. And throughout that, that pouring out of those bowls of wrath, there was this hope, there was this chance, there was this opportunity for people who did not know Christ, who did not worship God, to turn to him and be saved. And so the very end of chapter 11 gives way to a, a part of Revelation that some have called the, the dragon cycle or the dragon story. And we're going, okay, here it gets freaky again. Well, what John is actually doing is really, really interesting. Do you remember when I talked about the throne in heaven and that as John had a vision of this throne. He saw who was sitting on the throne that represented God, and he was holding a scroll in his hand. Do you remember us talking about that in chapter 4 and 5? And that we said that that scroll in those times was usually a deed or a will or something kind of official, and that's why it had so many seals is that it would only be opened for official business. And we thought that was a cool play on words because if it's somebody's will that as it unfolded, written completely on both sides of it, it represents the will of God. So catchy little play on words. Last will and testament, but the will of God, what God intended to happen from the beginning of time until the end of time, how, how he unfolded the plan for you and I and every human that's ever breathed to be a part of his plan, to be, uh, as it says in here, for our names to be written in the Lamb's book of life. And so the, the theme of this scroll is that God's will would be unfolded throughout time. And so John goes all the way back to Jesus' birth and the cryptic language of this passage, chapter 12 in Revelation. There are seven characters or seven uh, players that are mentioned here. Seven is a big word in Revelation. And so in chapter 12, he goes back to the beginning to tell us about the end. Cool. So he says in chapter 12, a great sign appeared. You remember in Matthew, the sign of the star over the manger. And then a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. We would think that's Mary because it's going to be his mother, but it's, it's really not. It's representative of, of all of Israel, all of, all of the, the, the Hebrew story. And that that, that that nation gave birth to the Messiah. She was pregnant, crying out in birth pains, and another sign appeared in heaven, a whole, behold, a great red dragon. There is no doubt, you can write it in ink in your scripture if you write in your Bible, that is Satan. 
There, there's, there, it, it names him here in just a minute. His tail swept a third of the stars out of heaven. Um, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So you, you may remember from Bible school that there were two times that, that, that Jesus' life and calling were threatened when he was little. One was that Herod the Great uh, ordered the slaughter of all babies under the age of two because he had understood the prophecy that a king would be born, and he didn't want that to happen. So Joseph and Mary had to go to Egypt to escape this, this terrible slaughter and the other was when uh, Jesus was starting his ministry and Satan appeared to him in the wilderness and tempted him, basically, you ready for this, trying to short-circuit God's plan. So here, the dragon, Satan, is trying to kill Jesus when he's a baby so that God's plan would be short-circuited. When he was a, a, a man in the wilderness, Satan came to him to tempt him, trying to short-circuit God's plan, God's will, the scroll, the unfolding plan. And so John goes on to tell us pretty much the gospel. So she gave birth to the child, but the child was caught up to God in his throne. So it skipped a few years, but ultimately the ascension of Christ. He said the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. She was nourished. Now, so we've met the, the, the woman and the dragon and the child. Now we meet the angels. Verse 7, there arose a war in heaven. Michael and his angels are fighting the dragon. This, these are the unseen spiritual battles that go on all the time. We, we don't really understand that there is, there is a war within us and uh, without us that is, is spiritual. And, and I don't want to resort to the cheesy cliche of something sitting on this shoulder and something sitting on this shoulder. But, 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 but Paul said, uh, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I shouldn't do, I do. The things I, I should do, I don't. Who can save me? Who can, who can make this war go away? And then he said in Romans 8, 1, thanks be to God, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this war in heaven is Michael fighting uh, Satan, and, and the great dragon was thrown down. Here is named, uh, verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down, and all of his angels with him. Now salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of us has been thrown down. And then verse 11, and they who have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even did it. He told the gospel story. Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived. He taught. He grew. He called disciples. He predicted His own death. He was tried, crucified, dead, buried. On the third day, He rose again ascended to heaven, and promised he would return. All of that's in there. And John goes back to the beginning to capture what's going to happen in the end. And so throughout chapter 12, we, we get this battle that's going on, rich imagery to recall the birth of Jesus despite Herod's attempts to kill him and the, the short-circuiting. So, so we meet all seven players we meet the, the woman, the dragon, the child, Michael and the angels. We meet uh, uh, the offspring, the dragon, verse 17, was furious because he was thwarted. Here's where we come in. 
he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Jesus said in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you might have life, peace. In the world you will have tribulation. We're not promised that we're delivered from suffering. When, whatever the rapture is and whenever it happens, we're not promised that we will be delivered from suffering. Suffering has a, a, a role in drawing us to Christ. And so Satan is making war on offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold on to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. All of us have been familiar with this attack that Satan will attack us when we're, when we're uh, getting in the place, in the lane where God wants us to be. Something happens. He attacks us through our work, through our friendships, through our families. He attacks us. And so in chapter 13, we, we see the, another player in the drama. This is number six out of seven. I saw a beast rising out of the sea, ten horns, seven heads, this is frightening. So to it, the dragon gave his power, his throne, and authority. <clears throat> now, in just a minute, we're going to know who this is. He is the anti-Christ. Anti, against, opposed to. He, he is everything that Jesus isn't, and he isn't everything that Jesus is. And this Antichrist is a, is a human. It says that he's not Satan. He's not an angel. He's not supernatural. But, but God uh, or Satan gave him his power and authority. So we, we get this great beast. And uh, one of his heads had a mortal wound and it was healed. And uh, it, perhaps that is the uh, recount of the story in Genesis where, where God says to man, you will stomp on the serpent's head. The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Wait a minute, what? Verse 3, one of its heads was wounded. Verse 4, verse 3, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped him. And they worship the dragon. They worship the beast. They worship Satan. And I'm going, if he is so horrible, if he's so grotesque, if he's so recognizable with, with the wounded head and the, and the horns and the heads and, and just ugly as your feet, why in the world would people worship him? We'll go back to the word anti-Christ. It's used five times in the Scripture in four different verses, all of those verses written by John here in Revelation and then in the letters that he wrote. Anti means opposed to, but it also means instead of. Instead of. What if the Antichrist is not so grotesque that we would be appalled, frightened, repelled? What if it's an instead of, and so it's an imitation of? It's a, a beautiful thing, a profitable thing, a, a kind thing, a, an almost thing. His, his number is 666, triple times short of perfection. So, so maybe it's almost, and his message is that we could 
worship the beast, and we could worship the dragon, and we should put our faith in little g gods instead of big g god because we, maybe we wouldn't have to suffer so much. Maybe we wouldn't have to sacrifice any. Maybe we would just be attracted to the beauty. So as we read Revelation, particularly in chapter 12 and chapter 13, we see these beasts. There's a, another one in, in chapter 11, and ch- verse 11. Uh, this, this is sort of a minion to the first beast who's a minion to the dragon. So, so we've got this organized thing going on. Verse 16, it causes small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to be marked so, so not only is the dragon employing these beasts to kind of recruit his army, he makes sure that they're marked. A little while ago, we talked about baptism being the mark of, of we who follow Christ, that, that in obedience to, to uh, his command, when we receive him as our Lord, as our Savior, we, we are baptized so that the whole world can see, I'm on team Jesus. I, I have received the, the action, the, the water. I've been all the way underwater, representing the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. I have identified with him. I've got his mark. And I wrote in my Bible, a little note. Alan, whose mark do you bear? Whose mark do you bear? As you go out on Monday, as you drive on 285, as you negotiate in the stores, as you engage in online behavior, whose mark do you bear? And so at the very end of chapter 13, it tells us that, that this, this beast is numbered 666, and maybe that's Nero, maybe it's somebody else. It, it's, it's, it's useless to kind of figure out. He is instead of Christ. He is opposed to Christ. That's pretty much all we need. Verse 14, chapter 14, it starts by saying there's a, an identifiable number there's a back to that 144,000, that, 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 that group that represents the collected body of Christ. And, and so he, he talks about they who had, verse uh, 1, his father's name and the lamb's name written on their foreheads. So apparently it's, it, it's pretty easy to see whose team you're on because it's right there. And then he said, I heard a voice from heaven, and, and, and all these people were worshiping. And verse 4, you need to get, it says, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and for the Lamb. So those who have uh, been marked with Christ, he, he uses an agricultural metaphor. He says, they have already been set aside. They are the, 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 the fruit offering. They are the first fruits. They are the, the choice ones. And, and he's really talking about martyrs here. He's talking about those who have died for their faith who have followed Jesus in the way of of being killed because of their stance, because they represented, because they were uh, followers of Christ. Then there's a little pause, and three angels deliver a sermon. One writer said, this is the clearest sermon that anybody's ever preached. I was offended. He said, the first angel said, fear God and give Him glory, verse 7 of chapter 14. Okay, worship. Another angel said, uh, Babylon has fallen, and she made other people drink the wine of immorality. So, consequence, worship, consequence. The third one uh, said, uh, followed, says, if anybody worships the beast and receives the mark, 
then he will drink the wine of God's wrath. And so worship, consequence, perseverance. Hang on. He says, God will pour out his wrath in full strength, verse 10, and he will be tormented. And then verse 12 kind of tells us what it's about. Here's a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And then the benediction we read a little while ago, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So we get this picture. Chapter 11, he says, judgment is coming. Chapter 12, he says, here's the battle. It's, it's, it's that Satan is trying to disrupt God's plan for humanity. He's also trying to disrupt his plan for your life. And here's the spiritual battle that's going on. And the angels come along and said, okay, don't forget, worship. Be aware that sin has a consequence. There's no such thing as a free lunch. And that your call is to persevere. Your call is to endure. Your, your, call, your call is to wear proudly the mark of the Lamb, even though it may cause us to be excluded from polite company when we try to say to our friends, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. So only can be lonely. But then we get to this place where the harvest is described, and I just made it cute, a sickle can get you in a pickle. He says, verse 14, I looked and there was a white cloud seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. No doubt this is Jesus. Another angel came out of the temple calling to say, put your sickle and reap for the hour has come the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Well, that sounds pretty positive. It, he, he talks about a ripe harvest. The fields are white with harvest. People are ready to receive Jesus. People are ready to understand that their sin has a consequence, that their call is to worship God, that they are to endure uh, as, they, as they live out with the life of a disciple. So that's a, a positive metaphor there. And, and then go back to verse 4 where, where he said, listen, these have been redeemed from uh, mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. But then there's another harvest there. So he who sat on the cloud, verse 16, swung a sickle across the earth. The earth was reaped. Then another angel came out, and he too had a sickle. And another angel came out, and he had authority over fire. And he said, put your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are, ra- are, are, are ripe. And you're going, well, I like grapes. Love me a good PB&J. Some of you, love me a little wine. Grapes are good, right? Nah, not so much. Verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And what came out was not grape juice, but blood. And so there are two harvests that are discussed there. Again, we're, we're moving towards judgment, and the primary judgment that's in sight right here is a judgment that calls people to repentance. And he said there is a, a harvest of those who are, who are faithful, and maybe that's the rapture, maybe it's not. We, we don't know. But what we do know is that God is recognizing the hearts of the people who are, are drawn towards Him, the people who are serving Him. He's, he's, he's honoring their hearts. 
but he also recognizes those who are not. And so he then goes right into chapter 15, where he picks up where we left off last week, that there's another sign, and this is the sign of God's wrath. And when we get to the seventh of these bowls, he says it's done. That's all the wrath that God's going to pour out. But look what he does along the way. Each bowl means something. Verse 2, he said, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of his name. They, They had conquered. They sing the song of Moses, representing the Old Testament, what God did in the Old Covenant. And they sing the song of the Lamb. He brought Old and New Testament together. And what's the New Testament about? It's about grace. It's about God drawing people to Himself through the blood, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That's His, his, his that, that our, the ultimate wrath of God, the ultimate final judgment is avoided because we have taken on the mark of the Lamb. We have taken on the lifestyle of the Lamb. We, we have said to Him, come into my life. I want to live for you and with you. And so there's a hymn that's sung, Robert, a little shout out to the musicians. And then the seven bowls of wrath are poured out in chapter 16. First angel poured out his bowl, and it was on the people, and painful sores came upon those who took the mark of the beast. Second angel poured his bowl into the sea, and it became... uh, uh, contaminated. The third angel poured his bowl into the rivers. They became contaminated. And then an angel in charge of the waters uh, sang a little hymn. And, and, he, and he says, they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, the people who are being judged. You've given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. Yes, the Lord God Almighty, verse 7, uh, you're, you're true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel blotted out the sun check this out, verse 9. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over their plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. In the midst of all of this crazy wrath stuff going on, there is this tiny little line that's repeated in the next verse as well. They did not repent, which means they had a choice to repent. They did not drive the wrong way down I-55, because they had a choice not to drive the wrong way. They had a a chance to see the signs of the times and obey them. They weren't confusing left, right, straight, don't turn. Jesus said clearly, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's the story of Revelation. That's the story of God's will in the scroll. That's the story of all that we ever talk about in church. As a matter of fact, if we can't talk about the resurrection, I never want to do another funeral again. Because that is the story. That's the story that we tell. If I can't tell a family that there is life after this life, if I can't tell myself there is life after this life, I've got nothing to say at a funeral. I may have nothing to say at church. Because this is it. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Yet these people didn't repent. Same verse, next one. It says the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. So, so now the beast is being attacked, and people curse God for attacking the beast. 
yet they did not repent of their deeds. Sixth angel poured out his uh, wrath, and, and, and it says they, they are approaching uh, and assembling them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. That's the day that the song sings about. That will be the day when all will bow before him. That will be the day when death will rise no more. Seventh bowl is poured out, and verse 17 from the throne said, it is done. The city was split into parts. God remembered Babylon the great, and it was done. So the next two chapters talk about two things. The great prostitute and the great beast. And uh, to kind of cut to the chase, Verse 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 1, uh, the angel says, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. And it goes into great detail about who that is. And it, it's Rome and it's empires and it's people and it's, it's those who have opposed the ways of God. And Rome is, is called out here. Babylon is code for Rome in, in John's vision. And all the people who were reading it in the first century knew how wicked Rome was. At the very end of this, uh, of this passage in, in uh, chapter 18, uh, uh, verse 13, it says that, that all of these fine things they, they traded, the kings of the earth, the great empires. And it actually says there's... Uh, five empires that have faded away, one that is current and one that is still to come. And anybody reading this would go, okay, the first Babylonian empire, then the Assyrian empire, then the second Babylonian empire, then the Greco-Macedonian empire, then the Persian empire, then the Roman empire, and there's still one to come. Well, we just translate that to all of the totalitarian uh, uh, governments, all the organizations, all of the, uh, the groups that call themselves groups, and, and all they want to do is wreak havoc on uh, other human beings. That's who this is talking about. It's talking about people who oppose God in the name of another God, people who deny Jesus in the name of another what they call Savior, they bring great harm on people. As a matter of fact, he calls it out. He said they even had slaves, human souls. A third of the population of Rome at the time were slaves. And they were abused in ways that are unimaginable, even by the standards of the news cycle that we've been watching for the last month. They denied God. They abused worship. They denied consequence. They denied perseverance. They took on the mark of another God. They abused people. God said, it's done. And the rest of chapter 17 and 18 speak of the fact that verse uh, 10 in chapter 18 says, for in a single hour your judgment has come. They begin to mourn, but in chapter uh, 18, verse 20, God has given judgment for you against her. Verse 21, so will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence. So the judgment of Christ, 
the judgment of God using only one standard of measure. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Not our material possessions, not our hobbies, not our other gods, not our, our, our we march in the name of so-and-so God and, and we, we kill and maim in the name of the other God. If there is not Jesus, there is not God. If there is not Jesus, there is no salvation. If there is not Jesus, there is not heaven. There is not eternal life with our loved ones, with God himself. But the stunning thing about this whole passage is that the vast majority of the passage allows repentance. Only in the last two, when, when Babylon just refuses, when Rome refuses, when, when empires and, and, and despots and politicians and totalitarian leaders, when they absolutely refuse to bow a knee to Jesus. That's what Paul said in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, ultimately every knee will bow, every tongue will confess of those under the earth, on the earth, above the earth. That doesn't leave out anybody. Eventually, people will bow a knee. But for most of this passage, there is an opportunity to repent. For most of this passage, the, the signs, the symbols, they are not to point us to, to the glee that God takes in destroying those who will not serve Him. It points to the yearning that He has that we would turn to Him. It points to the, the open invitation that He has, this, this, this remedial wrath that, that says uh, uh, the suffering is designed to point you to Him and only at the final judgment, talk about that some next week, only at the final judgment will there be a complete separation, a separation of those who have taken the mark of the lamb and those who have taken the mark of the beast. So I hope you hear me end on a good note that there's time, that whatever these days are, if these are the days before the tribulation, if these are the days of the tribulation, the signs all point to the same thing. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. And today is the day that you could say yes to Him. Would you bow your heads? could very well be that I have frightened you, and I hope that's not the case. God doesn't desire you to be scared into worshiping Him. He desires that you be awed with His patience and His love, that you would be blown away by the truth that He so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever would embrace Him, whoever would turn to Him, would not perish, would not face the final judgment, but would inherit eternal life. It's my prayer that perhaps this would be the day that if you've never turned to Him, you would say a, a very short and very sincere prayer, God, I need you. This, this stuff is frightening to me. I know that I've sinned. I know that I've, I've done things that, that are not pleasing to you. Please forgive me of those things and let me understand your forgiveness, your grace, and help me to live for you and with you forever. 
If you've never said that prayer or something like it, I invite you to say that today. And then after this service, out in the lobby in our connection corner, there will be volunteers or or pastors that you can come find and you can say, I needed to say that prayer today. And we'll tell you some next steps, how to go ahead and get ready for baptism and and become a part of a small group, the life of the church, and, and begin to grow as a follower of Christ. Lord Jesus, we need you. We pray that you would invade this place Accept our worship, accept our devotion. Let us be aware of your wrath, but ever grateful that you said you will deliver us from it. As the scripture says, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.